You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. This episode contains heavy subject matter centering around the loss of a loved one and grief. Content warnings for this session may include fantasy violence, fire, immolation, apocalypse, romance, complex and complicated relationships, monstrosity, death and killing, guns as weaponry, grief, trauma, death of loved ones and family, and the death of a major NPC. Arc 1, Episode 31. Life is Short. From Self-Eulogy of a Martyr by Connie Chong. The night sky is dark and vast. Stars glimmer like deep sea jewels embedded in blackest pitch. Behind a veil of clouds, the twin moons glimmer, each the shape of a god's eye blown wide. Beneath the sky, the old growth wood trembles. Its canopy of bare branches rustles, whispers, strains. And then, erupting from a tide of stripped bark, fire. A red pillar explodes into the sky, illuminating the darkness like a conqueror's sword. It surges up, 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 billowing, straining, no, Reaching, yes, fingers peeling away from the pillar, tongues of grasping flames surging upward toward the sky, and a whip of fire coils around one of the two moons, then wrenches it out of the sky. The moon slams down through the clouds, the thrash, the tangle, the sink, the drown, down, down, down through the branches and vines and leaves and thorns, ripping a hole through the old growth wood the size of a chasm. As it descends, the moon catches flame. It becomes a meteor, a comet, a falling fucking star, and it crashes into the darkness under eaves as a portent of blazing doom. It is as wide as the sky and as brilliant as flaming silver. Everything it touches crumbles instantly into ash. Aregnus, the god who ate the green, levitates beneath the moon, holding it above his head like the halo of a fallen angel. He cranes his neck up, opens his mouth, and swallows the moon whole. It glows down his throat, flickering like a martyr's last hope before its light is snuffed out. And when Aragnus opens his eyes, all of you feel deep in your souls that this is it. This is his final form, and this is your final stand. You must stand together. You must act now. Sing, as always, acts first. 
Those red threads she summoned are burning all around her, going up in flames, but she steadies herself in the silt and the loam and the darkness. Even haloed by fire and destruction and the remnants of a hard-fought battle on her skin, Sing is beautiful. But this time, she is beautiful as herself. Messy, complicated, changing every second. She is changing, taking a new step on her path. Sing's chosen path. And that path leads her to you, Lumira. Sing glances over their shoulder and makes eye contact with you, and they smile. A bright, melodic smile that hums in your chest like a prayer. And in that moment, you know what you have to do. How do you kiss her? Our first kiss was needy and furious. This time, Lumira strides up to sing a look of determination and confidence stretched across her face. She grabs Sing, one arm tightly around her waist, the other one is cradling the back of her neck. Her fingers are tangled in the locks, those white, beautiful white mane that she's seen so many times she can't even count, she dreams about. And she pulls Sing directly to her face and kisses her hard. And when she steps away, she reaches into her cloak and pulls out an envelope. It's got her name written on it, beautiful script, calligraphy, and little cherry blossoms that surround the corners of the S and the, the bottom of the G. This is for you, but don't read it now, okay? Read it after. We have work to do. That's a promise. And Sing takes this note from you, opens up the folds of her robes, and tucks it somewhere private and somewhere safe. And she looks back down at you, those pink eyes fixed upon your gaze, shining with so much affection and joy and determination. And then those eyes slide right past you, up at Aragnus, who has just swallowed the moon, and she nods to herself firmly once. Okay, let's do this. Together. As always, Inlumira will quickly kiss her again, and then smile. A smile that you've never really seen Lumira smile before. Now kick his ass. Yeah, and that smile is so familiar, so easy, so natural on Sing's face. A smirk, really. A grin of complete and abject confidence. And on Sing's grin at her beloved, we pan across this battlefield to find Zionin. How do you prepare for your final attack after being buffeted by that wave of fury? I think the fire caught Zynan a little off foot and he kind of pushes himself out of the loam and straightens all of his many layers out, the rifle having not gotten blown too far away, thankfully, because it lives on a sling. He's very good at keeping it on him, but he stands up, dusts himself off, 
puts his hat on, pulls the rifle out, and steps forward, not even seeing the kiss, because his eyes are locked on that red fire. And he steps forward with the rifle raised and ready. Let's go. Yeah, as you cock your gun and you ready it, raising the barrel of it toward Oregnus, where are you drawing a bead? The barrel kind of pans up the long body of Oregnus, looking for weaknesses, for any vulnerabilities. And I think he winds his way up, looking down the barrel, and stops at the moon glowing still inside for a moment. Yeah, that moonlight is beginning to become subsumed by licking tongues and fingers of fire that's trying to snuff it out. But right before the light goes, something within you rings and resonates. Is that where Aragonus's heart is? And then we pan across your face, lit up by roaring mouths of fire, up across the battlefield to find Savior. How do you brace against this buffeting wave and prepare for your final attack? Sayer sees the buffeting wave come after him. And in a moment of pure selflessness, he leaps off of Squall to take the brunt of the hit so that Squall will not take it. And as he attempts to shield himself with the wings that he was gifted, the gauntlets of black feathers, the debris, the flame, breaks against his gauntlets, rendering the one on his left hand unusable and broken. And he begins to fall into a tailspin, head downward. And as he falls and falters, he's spinning in place, wrapped around in a cycle of fire, of fallen debris, of fallen ash. And he sees everything. Like how he's trained his whole life to be, he sees everything on that battlefield. He sees Zynan, eye down the barrel, looking towards Oregnus, focused on a target he has not fully understood yet. He sees his sister, the chosen one, his other half, radiant, beautiful, beloved, beloved. Standing beside Lumira, they share not one but two kisses, beloved, chosen. And although there's the pang, his heart sinking within his chest, there's something within him that says, if this is the path, so be it then. I walk it with my sister, so be it then. And on the thought of the path of beaten fire, he reorients himself, calls upon that power within him. And with each falling branch, he jumps onto each of it like steps of a platform as he races towards Oregnus, unsheathing his crescent blades. Yeah, there is a shimmer of devoured moonlight that glints off the blades of your crescent sword shing, as you unsheath them, brace yourself, and then start charging upward, branch by branch, vine by vine, bark by bark, toward Oregnus. And as we swirl up toward this fire god, this ancient deity of hatred and destruction, we find the three scions who have also been flung backward by this shockwave of fire. Armagen, how are you bracing against this wave and how do you prepare for your final attack? I am bracing against this wave the best way I can with the other two scions of my 
the two people I love the most in this world. I think it's like I went to coil around Suhyun, and then like Abase coiled around us, and then Suhyun like coiled around the two of us. So I think we made like a little like weird like intermingled coil to like not get thrown back. And I see these strangers is maybe not the right word, but these strange people who have strange customs and claim to be from somewhere I haven't heard of. And like, I've given up on them ever telling me about what's really going on, but I see that they are here to fight with us. And I look at the other two scions and I say, the wild sea is our home. We cannot let them do this alone. Can we? <laughs> Absolutely not. And Suhyun just lets out a roar, a vibrating explosion of sound as their sphere of protection shrinks down to cover the three of you uh, and absorb much of the impact of that blow. And as you see this translucent shield, I think around your draconic intertwined bodies absorb that impact, you see it vibrate. And then Suhyun lets out another roar and it breaks backward, shooting back toward Aregnus and slamming into his fiery back. But it's like a tidal wave breaking against an infinitely tall cliff made of pure flame. Aregnus, after swallowing the moon, is as strong as he's ever going to get. But Amargin, there is something within you, too, as well. You may have awakened your draconic form, but that is not the limit of your power. You can feel it in the depths of your soul, heart of the wild sea, and the body of the wild sea can feel it too, and the soul of the wild sea can feel it, and so can the mind of the wild sea, and then we pan across this battlefield once more to find Lumira. You've just stepped away from Sing, looking up at Aregnus. You see the three scions starting to uncoil, starting to glow with a kind of deep, instinctual, ancestral power. And something surges within you, an inspiration, an understanding. What do you do? Lumira's eyes quickly, once, twice, thrice, fall across the battlefield as she takes in everything. She sees the scions up above, swirling and glowing in a way that she can't exactly explain why or how she understands, but she does, and it's warming to her still. And before shooting her eyes over to where Pop Pop and Sayer are, watching all of them stand at the ready and Lumira falls back into formation as usual, reaching into her boots to grab her knife and crouching towards the ground, ready to pounce on anything that comes near her people. As Lumira crouches down, your fingers tightening around the handle of your boot knife, Sarah. You feel it. Zionin, you feel it too. A shared knowledge, a shared understanding between the members of Strike Team Nova, a shared... What is that exactly, Sayer? A shared whisper. An omen. And as Sayer 
is launching further and further closer towards the beast that he has promised he would end, that he swore he would end, that he prophesied that he would end. He holds his crescent blades like a hawk preparing to claw into their prey, and all he yells out is, Nova on me! And uh, I will attempt to try and pierce into the chest of this thing to reveal a weakness for the others to exploit. Okay. Uh, you're gonna have to unleash that whisper in order to do that, <laughs> in order to pierce the carapace of the armor of this huge fire god. All three of you, I think. Say less. Lumira hears strike team on me and it is instant without hesitation without blinking she pounces and she's wielding her boot knife but reaching back to stick her pocket watch into her pocket tapping it ever so lightly and she wants to use the oil aspect of her whisper time around all of strike team nova just for a second freezes before immediately switching back into high face pastime again and in that freeze lumira has attempted to open another liminal but this one it oozes the black oil and ichor of what we've seen previously in the wild sea and she is stuck on the battlefield in time frozen holding that spot waiting for you too yes i think sayer as you launch yourself forward the points of your hooks latch onto the center of Oregonus's chest. And as soon as Lumira opens up that liminal and that whisper is shouted out loud into the world, oil, it resonates outward from you, Lumira, with incredible power, incredible force. It's almost outside of the boundaries of your control. And all of you see a clockwork gear etched in edges of pure black oil open up exactly where Sayir has hooked himself onto. We see bleeding black blood, black ichor, gas-like veins opening across Aregnus's chest. And then we pan across the battlefield to that cowboy with a gun down the barrel all the way in to Zynan's bright green and black eye. He steps forward, the loam crunching just a little, and he puts his boot up on a root, a, a very low part of a root, because I know the roots here are quite large. Um, but as he rests it there, you see that wisp of dust, of salt, that has been trailing with him as long as we've been in the wild sea. And it licks up his leg, and you see it actually trace all the way up to his hand, still resting on the trigger. And he hears Lumira say oil, and he never speaks very loud, Zynanesh. But this time, from deep in his chest, he feels that call to dust, that ash that clings to him since moments ago. And he sees the liminal open. And just like we did just a moment ago, Zynan yells, Ash! And he is going to shoot 
for the vulnerability in the oil. A bullet of pure dust punches out from your barrel and slams into the perfect center of that clockwork gear, which is moving clockwise, no counterclockwise, no clockwise, counterclockwise. It's impossible to tell. It's two images of past, present, future, what has been, what has not been, and what will be overlapped on each other. And your bullet smashes all possibilities and bursts open the center of Aragnus's chest and hot tongues of not just fire, but sludge, lava, magma, explode load onto you, Sayer, from the fire mixing with the ash, mixing with the oil, and you see the center of Aragnus's being, a pulsing living heart of pure flame, somehow weaker, somehow more vulnerable, and yet more beautiful than this outer version that wraps around Aragnus is. What do you do? Sayer pulls, holding that wound open, peels back with the left crescent blade as he leans forward. He raises his fist with the other crescent blade and he sees it at the time moving within the liminal, the ash coalescing with the magma within and Sayer looks into that beating fiery heart and he says, die forgotten one, blame. And he will punch into the heart and set it ablaze. Yes, as you punch yourself into the heart, fire explodes in every direction. Massive gouts of gushing arterial venous flame pouring out of that ripped hole that was once his sternum. And we pan up over these plumes of bleeding fire to find Amarjan, Suhyun, and Abasi. Amarjan, in this moment, you know it is now, do or die. This final gambit of these strangers, you know they need your help. They cannot do this alone. This is not enough. How do you, as the heart, the mind, and the body of the Wild Sea, work together now to send this being back whence it came? As we fly over, I look to Abasi first. If I'm the light in the darkness, you're the one for the sun. And then I look at Suhan. If I am the flash of lightning of the storm, you are the calm that comes after. We are the Wild Sea. We are the Scions. We Let's fucking go! are the change bringers. We are the hope givers. We are the life stealers and the death bringers. Let's we fucking go! must do this together. Soul. Body! And Sukhyon roars out. Mind! And upon the exclamation of these whispers, light explodes from each of your bodies. And Aubergen, you feel yourself transforming yourself in perpetual change, but now realizing a version of the pinnacle of who you could become, who you already are, who you are now stepping into. How does this whisper make you into the true heart of the Wild Sea? Princess Hylian Amergen glows a bright cerulean light. You know how you can taste lightning? You you don't just taste lightning, you feel it like shoot through your soul. And I get big. Uh, you see this light grow and grow and grow. And it gets so bright and so hot 
almost. It is almost like there's like another ball of flame here. And I think it's a brief moment of worry of like, uh-oh. And I am going to punch right into this hole that these people have made. And you see this like coil up and out of Aregnus's mouth. And then it dies. And floating there in the air is Princess Hylian Amargen. As you both saw her. Because this entire time, it isn't some blessing or some power that she needed. What she needed was her friends. And in hitting this peak, she realizes that as she punches through and comes out the top of Aregnus' mouth, holding his heart. A small flame flickers in the palm of your hands as you are in the form you have always been, in the form that you are at the heart of you, Princess Hylian Amergen, and we pull in on your face, through your eyes, and we witness a memory. Amergen, you are 20 years old. You're in your room. You are still dressed up from Suhyon's coronation, and there is a bitter feeling in your mouth. Your mother stands at the threshold, exasperated, concerned, her arms crossed over a torso glittering with royal gems. Amergen, Suhyon's coronation has nothing to do with you. There is no reason to be upset. Okay, sure. Then there's no reason to be upset, I suppose. Anything else? Amergen? Mother? What did we say about hiding things from each other? I don't know. Um, something about always being truthful with each other, I suppose, but... Does that rule apply to you, too? Ooh! And Mylesia's eyes widen for a fraction of a second before her eyebrows set, and she cocks her head to the side sharply. What are you trying to imply, daughter? I'm not implying anything, mother. I'm saying something as a matter of fact. I'm your daughter. You should know better than anyone that you can't hide from me. Your tells are all over your face. And I'm your mother. You should know more than anyone that you can't hide anything from me either. So what is it that is bothering you? I get off my bed. I was sitting on it like pouting princess style, and I walk over. You want to know what's bothering me? Yes, please. What's bothering me? is that, once again, here I am, sitting in my room, wondering why my own mother won't tell me what the fuck is going on with me. Sorry. It's just... I am, and Armagen's tears up a little bit, so angry all the time. And I know you know why you won't tell me. Armagen, you... She uncrosses her arms, and for a fraction of a second, you think maybe this time, maybe this is it. Maybe your mother will finally tell you about who you are, who you really are. This strange, unspoken secret that you've always had a gut feeling she was keeping from you. Even as you've seen Abasi get coronated and claim her power as Sion, and now Suhyon get coronated and claim their power of Sion. You're older than them both, and here you are. Powerless, but more than that, not understanding where your power even comes from. Your mother looks at you, opens her mouth half a beat, and then 
closes it again. You are not ready. I will see you in the morning for sword forms. And she turns and strides out of your room. Mother? She pauses at the threshold. Why am I not good enough? Her hand lingers on the threshold, on the door frame, and she turns her face to the left so you only see her head in profile, so you can't see that quick twist of deep pain that crawls itself across her expression. Amarjan, it's not about you not being good enough. It's about... Never mind, just... Just go to bed, we'll talk about this later. And she turns her head the rest of the way and strides out. Amarjan has a level four tantrum in her room. There's like things being broken, there's screaming. Uh, and I think it all ends with her sitting in the middle of her room that she is trashed. I think this is probably the third time it's happened. Sitting in the middle of her room angry crying and she's just like I'm holding everyone back they don't need me if I can't be coordinated then there won't be a soul of the wild sea and they'll move on without me I have to get better I a ship I'll find a ship and the memory freezes there you surrounded by your own broken objects your own shattered home an artifact entombed in amber. And your mother, your real mother, not this memory of her, your present-day mother, she turns and she faces you. Mylesia has been watching this memory, just like you have, and you, Amargin, the real you, not this memory of you, the present-day you, turn to face her as well in this moment of suspended time. You are side by side, shoulder by shoulder, gazing upon this recollection together, and your mother's face is soft and sad and regretful, but also proud, but also knowing. And Mylesia says to you, Oh, Amarchin, I... I thought I was protecting you. You were, in a way. I... It really hurt, and that's something we'll probably have to have a few dinner conversations about. But I understand. You, you were right. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for this. And I gesture to nothing and everything. I gesture to the feeling of being connected to the Wild Sea, feeling every single bird perching on a branch, every sway of wind, every gust of flame that's still out there. I I did not want it for the right reasons. I wanted it to keep up with my friends, not to help them. <laughs> Amarjan, I am so immeasurably proud of you, of the person you have become, of the person you have always been. Our blessing is a difficult one to bear. Being the heart of the Wild Sea grants us immense power, yes, but also, as you have learned, immense pain. 
When I channel the verdancy, I feel every cut blade, every burning branch, every snapped twig as though it were my own body being broken. This is not a burden I wanted you to bear until, until I absolutely could not hold it anymore. I was trying to protect you, to shield you from this pain. And I must admit, a part of me didn't want you to be Scion at all. Not because you weren't worthy, but because a mother wants to protect her daughter from the hurt of being in the world. Ma'am? Yes. Thank you. <clears throat> and I... <clears throat> I walk up and I, like, cup her face. It's my turn to protect you. My queen, you have worked so long for so hard, but I've got it now. And she raises a hand, a hand that she always keeps clasped behind her back so upright. She raises it and cups your hand against her cheek. Oh, I have made a lot of mistakes in my life. Perhaps the most dire was keeping the truth of who you are from you. I shouldn't have hidden your legacy, our legacy. You are the Storm Witch. And I was afraid that if you knew, you would go out there and bear the burden of everything. And you know I wanted to protect you from that. But I know now that you, Amarjan, you, and she holds your hand tight, smiling against it. You are not me. And that is a wonderful thing. Your path will not, does not, has never looked like mine. I carried the burden of our mantle alone. But your generation, Amarjin, it is different. It is very different. Masu, Hanyose, and I, the three of us were friendly, but we were never close. We were never friends like you and Abasi and Suhyon are. Each of us carried our burdens alone, and look where that got us. Hanyose is gone. Masu became corrupted. And I... I shut myself out from the world. From you. Because I thought it was the right thing to do. But, and this pains me to admit you know how my pride is, Amarjan, I was wrong. I'm sorry, could we- is there a scribe here? No, no scribe here in our shared memory chamber, but you and I will both know in our hearts of hearts what I just said. Okay, I'll just tell the scribe when I get home. Uh, and my leisure still, like, raises a perfectly manicured eyebrow. <laughs> Do not forget, daughter, whose payroll it is that they are on. That's- you're right. Um, speaking of payroll, mother, I asked you to rest, and I reach a hand into nothing to, towards the storms over Siren Song, and I mm. quell her storm and start my own. Rest. Your mother's eyes flicker shut. She breathes in deep, her chest heaving, and she exhales a sigh of relief. And you see every burden your mother has carried her entire life, every silent burden come off of her shoulders but before she fully releases it she hesitates I 
Amrishan. You will not share this burden just on your own shoulders, yes? You will share it with your friends alongside them? I put up both hands and Suhan and Abasi appear into this shared space. Always. And speaking of such, let the other leaders know they can rest as well. And I think all of our eyes lit up cerulean and a storm covers the wild sea. Oh, yeah. In the waking world, we hear thunder crash through the stratosphere. We see flashes of lightning and rain. Life-giving rain begins to brim in these dark clouds and fall and then back in this mind chamber with you and Suhyun and Abasi and your mother as the rains lash against the windows of your bedroom here. She smiles and she looks so radiantly proud. Amarjan, Mylesia steps forward. She cups your face in both hands and she says, Amarjan, you are the luckiest girl in the world because you are so loved. And your mother wraps you in her arms, holds you tight in a hug, and she whispers in your ear, You are the sun and the moons. You are the wind on the waves. You are my daughter, Hylian Amergen, and you are the heart of the wild sea. And on that, we push out of your eyes, out of your tangled mane of draconic fur, now disappearing and turning back into your hair, and now find ourselves returning to the present. Power hums through your body, wind gusts around your form as you levitate there, cupping a flickering flame in the palm of your hand, and we sweep across this landscape of fury, fire, storm, rain, and wind to find Zynan Esh. Zynan we push in on your eyes, on the crook of your jaw, on the furrow of your brow, and we too witness a memory. You are 14 years old. The barley fields are gold under the pale sun, and the raptors are chittering in their pen, sharp beaks nosing at the wooden posts. The steading stands behind you a quarter mile away, far enough that the cracks won't disturb Sorna while she's cooking dinner, but close enough that the farmhouse's roof is visible on the western horizon. Sorna's old workbench has been dragged out of the barn, placed 40 feet downwind, and loaded with tin cans from the scrapyard. There are 10 cans total, one for every round the bolt action can hold. Your muscles are sore from dragging this workbench all by yourself, all 1,320 feet of the trek out east. But this is part of the process. You know this. Eja stands in the barley, arms crossed, hacked low over their eyes. They're small, smaller than Sorna, that's for sure, with a slender frame that's all black and gray and brown from their duster. Your Ema's size is deceptive. You've seen her strike faster than a skull viper when it counts. Choppy white hair protrudes from under the brim of their hat, shielding sharp, neon green eyes. The rifle now rests across Ija's hands as they hold it up 
It's beautiful. The wooden stock is dark and polished. The steel barrel shines under the pale sunlight. It smells like gun oil. Ija's own recipe, sharp and fragrant. This is it. Today is the day. After years of shadowing Ija, years of watching your Ima carry and clean and fire that gun, you'll finally get to hold it. But not yet. As we pan across this barley field, we settle upon your face, Zionin, 14 years young. What do we see? Freckles. Deep purple freckles spot a almost unblemished, he is 14, lavender face, soft, still maturing cheeks, and a grin so big you wouldn't think that he was sweating profusely from every place humanly possible from the work to get all of this out here and from the nerves. (laughs) He has lived for this moment since he realized what his Ema did and how hard they worked and all he's ever wanted is this chance this moment and he pulls away and lets his loose comfortable farm clothes a wrap shirt a simple sash very comfortable boots kind of just lets the air blow through and feels the breeze the green in the air and lets it calm him as much as he is his Ema's son he also knows a good wind Some fresh air does you a lot of good, like his mom would tell him. That's right. It's so cool and refreshing against your skin. It's the end of summer. Fall is just beginning to be a whisper on the wind, carrying promises of the end of a nice crop on the edges of the lake. But that's not what's on your mind right now. What's on your mind right now is that beautiful object in your Ema's hands. Ija raises the gun for you to inspect. Not to touch, just to look at closely. Light glints off the barrel, and they don't look at the gun, they look at you carefully, closely, as they speak. Zynan, tell me, what do you see? A tool. I see a tool. A way to knock those cans down over there. A can knocker down. What else? Uh, fine piece of craftsmanship. Someone put a lot of time and care and good upkeep. Hmm. What else? Uh, and he stumbles. He thought he knew the answer to this question, and the third time kind of chokes him back a little bit, but he wants to impress Isha so badly (laughs) that he's almost vibrating as he's searching and searching and he looks at the barley and he looks down the stalk and he looks at their fingers Uh, it's a it's a it's a way to keep things safe keep the flock safe and Isha at that raises their chin a fraction of a quarter of an inch 
and something close to a shine passes over their eyes, and something close to a smile quirks the edge of their handsome mouth. And they say, This gun is a lot of things. It's a weapon, yes. It is dangerous, and it demands to be respected. But don't mistake its design for its only purpose. Its purpose is in the hands of the people who wield it. In my hands, in your hands, this gun can become a tool for living, not killing. What does that mean? It's not for hurting people. It's for stopping hurt. And Ija nods twice, slowly, solidly. Learning to shoot this tool goes beyond the firearms, Ainan. Learning to shoot means learning how to care for the people around you. What it means to defend the people you love. The risks involved. The sacrifices. And the intentions. You see, there's a difference between a punk with a gun waving it around to prove something they never got from their Ima, and a protector who holds their gun like a shield. Zainan stands there, and he could listen to them sermonize at him about how to become who they are all day. All he wants to do is become. Every bullet you fire, Zainan, is going to teach you something about yourself. Something about who you are. Something about who you're going to turn out to be. It seems simple at first. (laughs) Shooting to prevent hurt rather than to cause hurt. Sometimes those lines can get muddled. Even for myself these days. But it's important to hold on to the core of why you pick up this weapon. So tell me, Zainan, why do you want to hold this gun? Why do you want to shoot? Uh... I... I... What if I miss? (laughs) Then there are consequences. Like I said, this isn't a risk-free tool. This weapon is dangerous. Dangerous based on what you hit. Dangerous based on what you don't hit at the wrong time. That's the promise you make to yourself when you pick this tool up. Yes, I, uh... I want to only hit the right thing at the right time. Just like you. (laughs) Punk. Protector. Pariah. At the end of the day, these ways of holding the gun... These reasons for holding the gun, they're just personas. I don't expect you to reach the truth of who you are in this exact moment, Zainan. That's something you gotta find out for yourself. But just know, every time you pull that trigger, you're telling the world and yourself exactly who Zainan Ash is. More than just a label, even the label of protector, you get to decide what that means and who you'll be. I want to be someone who makes you and Ma proud. That's all. Now, Zainan, you know you don't have to try for that. Then I want to make our lives better. Better. (laughs) Never lose that, Zainan. You're going to grow up. 
That's the truth of the world. Everyone's going to grow up. And some people, when they grow up, they lose that. And they turn to shooting as a way of proving what they lost, or they turn to gambling, or they turn to sweet talking. Everyone's always trying to get back the things they've lost. But you hold on to that. And you hold on to this. And they raise the gun. Carefully, Zainan. Like a shield. Like a promise. And use it to keep us safe, yes. But not just me and Sorna and yourself. People you haven't even met yet. People you're gonna love. One day. People who are gonna love you. Alright. Uh, and Zainan very gingerly, like, trying to coax a young bird out of a pen, holds his hands out. Not taking it. He's not actually sure he knows how to hold a shield. He's not sure that he knows exactly what that means yet, but he trusts more than anything else the hands that are giving it to him, that they wouldn't give it to him without meaning, without reason, without purpose. And he just looks to Isha his green eyes glinting in the brief daylight, and he just feels worthy for just a moment. And Asia, looking down at you, you see those bright neon green eyes glint with pride as they see an honesty on your face, a truth, not a greedy desire to hold this cool weapon to do something amazing and spectacular with it, but an honest truth of a simple desire from a boy who loves his Ima and his Ma, and is thinking about the people he might love one day, and the people that might love him one day. And Isha sees that, and they smile, and they lower the gun into your hands. And the weight of a shield, Zaydanesh, is much heavier than expected. that we push out of your eyes out from under the brim of your hat out from the billowing cape of your duster to find ourselves back in the present and zinan esh that bullet made of pure dust ricocheting out of the barrel exploding against aragnus's chest now that feels right that feels like a way of keeping the people you love safe as your gaze steadies on that drawn bead. Where does your attention go? There's a bright, bright star. The rest of them are blacked out, but you can't blot them out. Sing. In all of their wonder, he thinks about all the people that he would learn to love and all the doors that she's opened so that he can love them again. You make direct eye contact with Sing. And in that moment, in bullet time, words aren't exchanged between the two of you. No sentences are passed. But there is clear admiration in Sing's eyes. She sees what you're doing, the intentions behind you firing that gun, the love that's charging all of it. She grins so wide it could swallow up the world, and she charges forward, longsword singing, inspired by the way you hold your gun, the way you shoot. And as Sing 
bounds forward toward her destiny, her white hair flowing, we find, in the trail of cherry blossoms that follow her, Lumira. Lumira, when I said earlier that we're in bullet time, I meant it. Your strike team, the Scions, even Aregnus, grind to a halt. Flickering tongues of fire freeze mid-burn. Bodies are suspended in mid-air, mid-flight, mid-fall. Only you can continue to move, but you feel it. The boundaries of your freedom, three feet to your left, three feet to your right, three feet above your head, and three feet beneath your shoes below the ground. The liminal. Now that you've learned what a liminal is, you realize you can sense it. You can see it. It's like you're inside a soap bubble, but instead of iridescent pools demarcating the edges, there are tiny, slender, barely visible clockwork gears. And you see these gears spinning now, all around you, working in perfect harmony. How do you take this in for a brief beat of time? Lumira looks all around her and a sneer comes upon her face because she knows exactly what this is. And I think she relaxes her hold on her boot knife and just stands in the middle of the liminal, her arms up in a shrugging motion and is like, why are you here? And then there is a noise like static, like a ghost, like a memory, like a future omen that hasn't yet come to pass. There is a vibration in reality a few inches to the side and then flickering into existence. The drifter. Are you gonna make a habit of this? They are, as always, a darkened silhouette. Vaguely humanoid, vaguely not, buzzing at the edges of your perception. They levitate a couple of feet beyond the liminal. And when they speak, responding to you, their voice is distorted and garbled, the same way it was in the garden. There you are. Listen to me. You need to come with me. Now. And the drifter extends a shadowy hand through the gears into the liminal where you are suspended. Lumira steps back. Why would I come with you? Do you not see what is going on? I don't have time for this. This- Neither do I! There's no time. Take my hand now. I don't have time for this. No! <sighs> you, you stubborn, stubborn, always so stubborn. You should talk. And the drifter floats a couple more feet forward, extending that arm deeper into the liminal, trying to reach you even if you won't take their hand. If you make me miss what I have to do one more time, do you not see what is happening around here? Of course I see what's happening. Of course I know what's going on. What do you think time magic is? <sighs> stubborn, stubborn, always so stubborn. You should talk. And Lumira, when the drifter speaks of time magic, there's still that logical, calculating, extremely intelligent, absorptive part of you that's taking all of this in. And you realize 
It's not that the world outside the liminal has been frozen in time, it's that the pocket of time that you're inside is moving so fast that everything else is unimaginably slow in comparison. You see the grass around your feet and the loam beginning to age right before your eyes. And if you're in there as well, then it stands to reason you see the aging happen over the course of days at least, maybe weeks, turning into months as every sentence goes by. What is your purpose? I can't, you don't, I don't, I don't have time for this. You need to come with me now. You need to stop listening to fate. You really stopped me in the middle of what I had to do to talk to me about fate? Listen here. Fate has never steered me wrong. Ever. Fate has brought me Sing and Sayir and Sinan. Fate has brought me a family, finally, after years of not even remembering my own. So excuse me if I say fuck you. I will follow the path that fate has laid for me, not you. No, 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 can't you understand? I'm trying to help you. Can't you see that? You need to stop the worst tragedy. Help me by helping this. This? Aregnus? Aregnus isn't the tragedy, you fool. No, 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 not exactly. I can't, no, no, I can't, I can't. I can't tell you what it is. I can't even risk talking around it because if I do, it will happen. That's how this works. And if you knew, it would, it would destroy you. Why would I trust you? No, 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 I need you clear-eyed. Why would I trust you? Why would I believe anything that you said? Anything that you have said I... outside of this has made no sense. Because, because if you continue down this path that fate has laid out for you, you will be hurt in ways you cannot even begin to imagine. I won't ask again. I, I can't ask again. I'm running out of t Take my hand. I said no. And Lumira, how do you break the liminal? I think Lumira is pissed and in a flurry of walking past wherever the drifter was at, Lumira reaches out and with her four fingers on her left hand reaches into the liminal space. Her eyes zero directly in on where that weak spot is. For some reason, she's now super tuned to where these liminals are at and how she can break them. And she stretches her fingers into that space and breaks it open. The liminal shatters. The last thing the drifter says before they vanish is a rather shocked, surprised, who taught you that? And you collapse forward. Time resumes. Fire continues roaring around you, burning plants to ash. Bodies rise and fall. Sound comes crashing down against your eardrums like a tidal wave. And the fingers on your left hand, Lumira, has that always been there? Spreading downward, starting from your nails, now going over the first knuckle, is a covering of gold, 
pure, molten, glimmering, beautiful gold continuing to crawl up your fingertips and down your hand, even though the liminal is gone. But you've won. You've triumphed over the drifter. Your bond to fate, Lumira, feels stronger than it ever has been before, and you turn, setting your gaze back upon Aregnus, back upon this fight for the Wild Sea. And on that, we follow your gaze to the one beacon of hope that shines brightest above Nova. Sing, and Sayer. Sayer. We push in on your eyes. Those bright blue and dark black eyes, and we witness a memory. You are 15 years old. You stand in front of a door. The door is made of wood, and there are carvings of leaves, branches, entire forests in the grain. The handle is brass and dull and worn with care. The hinges are polished, silent, shining like lost souls in the middle of some dark wood. This is the day everything changes. This is the day you take a step into becoming who you were always meant to be. As we pull in on your 15-year-old face, Sayer, what do we see? How does this younger version of you compare to the Sayer we know now? And what is he up to? In stark contrast to Sayer of present day, 15-year-old Sayer is thin. He is a scrawny, lean, young man with short hair. So short that you, you could see the beginning of the waves and the curls that his hair lovingly fold upon his head. But they're still so young like a young seed just blooming underneath the loam of the soil. And you also see this young man, thin and scrawny, dressed in a layer of black, uh, a sleeveless shirt, a black tank, muscle tank, essentially, and is wearing tight, skinny trousers for athleisure wear. His arms are wrapped in bandages fighting wraps, and his knuckles are bleeding, seeping through that cloth. And these wraps look brand new, yet tattered and fraying at the edges, tearing at the seams. And he stands in front of the store, bright, boyish blue eyes, looking into every indentation of the carvings of the wood, calculating, thinking, contemplating and the longer this young boy lingers on thinking of planning he pushes that all aside brings his wrapped hand over the door and slides it open violently slamming the door against the frames and all he says without even taking in the room is hands artemis i need to talk to you i need you to train me now sayer you burst into Artemis's office, guns blazing, metaphorically, but just barely. And you enter a tastefully decorated room with earthen rugs and a fireplace crackling with red flames. The smell of incense is heavy here. And a long viewing bay on the opposite wall reveals a forest. A dark, rich forest with rustling leaves and bird song. 
Artemis, the patron saint of mortals, stands behind their desk. Their hands are placed flat on the table as though they're poring over a map, but a figure sits on the desk between her arms, tail swishing and head thrown back in a quiet laugh. It's Lucy, the patron saint of monsters, her feet dangling several inches above hardwood floors. The jacket of Lucy's pristine three-piece suit is slightly undone, slouched off one shoulder as though she were in the middle of doffing it. And as soon as you enter, Lucy's gaze travels lazily toward the door, and a small smile spreads across her lips. And Artemis immediately and calmly leans away from Lucy, who sidles to a stand, shrugging her jacket back on with a casual flourish. <clears throat> I trust I'll get those population reports early next week, Artemis. Com Ops is counting on them, and I'd rather not have a repeat of New Year's 9291. I thought we agreed that New Year's 9291 was being rescheduled to New Year's 9292 because William thought it was more fun. <laughs> uh, and with that, Lucy sweeps right past Artemis, the tail uh, grazing her chin lightly on the way out, and right past you, Sayer, and she smirks at you on the way out that tail waving like a lazy flag. Hi, Lucy. <laughs> she does not even acknowledge what you say. She slides the door closed with the tip of her tail and you and Artemis are alone. Sayer, your strike team training module does not begin until next week. Surely you don't have any discrepancies to adjust prior to beginning your circuits and surely you would have scheduled a meeting through the Prime Oracle if you wished to discuss such future placements. I don't have time for, for future placements at hand. I... And he begins pacing around the room. And we hear the sound of his athletic shoes beating against the floor in this flurry of anxiety, of nervousness, but of fierce and powerful determination. And he pans his boyish stare back at Artemis. I do not have that time. I need to get stronger and I need to get stronger. I'm lagging behind the rest of my peers. I, If I am to be the son of fate, if I am to carry my weight here in trance, then I need to, to step up. I need to be stronger, better. I see. Artemis moves a few objects on her desk, closing a dossier, shifting back and forth, looks at the seat across from her as though thinking that you might sit down in it. But of course, when you don't, she just continues to follow you around the room with those sharp gold eyes. Tell me, Sayer, what brought this on? I, I just think that as brother of the Chosen, I need to be stronger. I... I am lagging behind the rest of my cohorts and I need to be better. You are, you are the great huntress. If anyone can make anyone something, it's you. That's not exactly what I asked. What really brought this on? And Sayer at this point feels that gaze and his face hands away from Artemis's piercing analytical gaze and he realizes there's a need to peel back a layer. 
there's still a veil, but he peels back one layer to be a bit more vulnerable, and he notices the hand look over to the seat, and he nods and pulls a chair and, and sits down like a young schoolboy before this patron saint of mortals, and he pushes his a lock, a stray lock on his short hair back, and he says, I, I hear what everyone says about me. I, I know what they really think, and I know that everyone at Trans thinks that Sayer's the chosen one, she's the chosen of fate, and, and then, then, then there's Sayer. Sayer is also there, but they don't really, they don't see anything in me. In fact, it feels like they'd rather not I be anything. The quieter I be, the better, easier to blend to the darkness. I know what folks like Cove and all the other young young ones going to become trans agents say. I want to prove them wrong. I see. But Sayer, you still have not answered my question. You have talked about everyone else at trans. You have talked about your sister. You have talked about Cove. You have talked about the syndicate and what you think this world thinks of you. But that is not why... I asked, Sayer, why are you asking this? And like an arrowhead slammed into the bullseye of a target, Sayer slumped against the chair. He's been found out. How foolish he was to think that he could pull the wool over the eyes of the huntress herself. And he leans back and he twiddles with his thumbs. And before your very eyes, you see this 15-year-old just shrink back to a 10, 9, 8-year-old at the early blooming of this power within him. And Sayer looks down at that birthmark, that tattoo of the black sun upon his chest. And he grazes his fingers against these small hands over it. I have a feeling, again, like, like my omens, like, but, but not, but not in a bad way, not, not calamity, not destruction, not something terrible happening to someone. I, I feel a pull and pull to her, to my sister. I, I know everyone says that she's the chosen of fate, and I am also the son of fate, but I need to be by her side. I want to be by her side. I don't I don't even think the distinction between want or need even makes sense. It's it just is. I am to be by her side. I am to be her protector. I'm her brother. She's my moon. And I want I want to be there, by her side. I have to be. Artemis looks at you, and they don't just look at you, they listen, as they always have. Every omen you have received since stepping through the shadow of fate into the world, into the journey, she has listened every time, patient, watching, not a single emotion flickering over her face, and never, not once, fear. Never fear. And then she turns, shifts, 
goes to a bookcase laden with little objects, and she takes something from off of her own bookshelf. And then she takes something else, because this weapon, too, comes in pairs. Your moon knives, Sayer. Crescent blades, beautiful, simple, with small leather wraps and a curved silver blade. Artemis turns the weapon over in her hands, drawing a finger over the soft part of the blade, and then puts them down on the desk in front of you. This is a difficult weapon to master, Sayer, but they are well worth the trouble. They require special attention and discipline and power and time and focus and most of all, They require two things. She gestures at one, patience, and then at the other, violence. They are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other, and you cannot master this weapon without understanding them both. These are yours now. They will make you think. They are utility. They are a tool. They are not flashy. And they need as much training as you do. And there's a small smile as she says it. You mean... I... And he looks over those blades and immediately he feels it. Like an exhale, like relief. Like the red thread hold taut against a knot. This is it. And he places his small hands, those fingers, against the leather wrappings and looks up at Artemis. You think that I can... I can become that protector by my sister's side? You'd do it? Does not matter what I think, Sayer. What matters is what you do. And if you wield those blades right, Even a shadow can become unstoppable once it steps into the light. When do I start? You've already begun. And on that, we push out of your eyes, Sayir, out of Artemis' office to find ourselves back in the present. You move with precise purpose, with destructive force, supported by your desire to stand beside your strike team, stand beside your sister. And as you hurtle forward, we find you exactly where you wish to be, beside Singh, who bounces upward from a pink platform and launches herself into that wound that you've hooked your moon crescent talons into, and she drives the heft of her pink longsword into that open flame. And her face is ignited with it as well as she glances over at you with an adrenaline-fueled smile. I choose you. And Sing's face falls open. Her eyes go wide. There's a sharp intake of breath, and we push in on the Chosen One's expression, that determined look on her face, the sweat beating off her skin, her pink, pink eyes, and we witness a memory. Singh is 25 years old. She has just entered Artemis's office, and she is excited, if a little nervous, for her first ever Mayday mission. 
The rest of their strike team is just outside in the hallway, bickering about strike team Phoenix or stewing on their own one-on-ones with Artemis just moments before. Artemis sits across the desk from Singh with an unreadable expression on their face. As the door closes behind Singh, and before Singh can even take a seat, the patron saint of mortals speaks. You're coming up on your fourth mission, Agent Singh. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I've got a great team behind me. I've been training hard. I got my destiny from fate. So yeah, great. Your previous mission, 609-34114 Earth, did not go as planned. Do you regret not accepting your invitation to join the Twilight Guard when you still had the chance? I... you... you knew about that? I thought transfer requests were sealed after approval. Who do you think approved your request? Oh. Oh. There has only been one other field agent in the history of the Syndicate who has turned down a post at the Twilight Guard. So why did you refuse? The field on the transfer form was blank. But you approved it anyway. I did. Singh's face is drawn and conflicted. The bubbly air about her solidifies into something more real. Singh sits down. I want to make a name for myself. Not riding on the coattails of the Twilight Guard. Uh, No disrespect intended, of course. It's just that they've been number one for as long as anyone can remember, really, and I think it's about time the next generation shook things up. And your brother? My brother? If you had accepted the invitation to the Twilight Guard, you would have had to leave him behind. Did that influence you at all? (laughs) I really can't lie to you, can I, sir? No, and I don't know why you keep trying to. Of course it influenced my decision. But it's not because I pity him or because I think I need to watch over him or anything like that. It's because I want to do this with him. Even though Cove says I'm better off without him. Even though everyone says I'm better off without him. But I don't care about that. I want to make a new Twilight Guard, a better Twilight Guard with him at my side and with Zynan and Lumira. I want to make something beautiful, together, all of us. Artemis contemplates Singh. They cock their head to the side, studying the Chosen One. The Chosen One squirms in their seat, feeling analyzed. You should tell him. You would both benefit. Pardon? I tell you this, Agent Singh, because she will hurt you. She? Oh, sir, I know what people are saying about Lumi, but what happened with Amaru was just an accident. She's the hardest working healer I've ever met at Transit. I'm not talking about Agent Lumira. Sir? Artemis leans forward. Her golden gaze is intense, scorching, even. Singh can't tear her eyes away. This is her story. You are chosen to play a special role within it, yes. But if you let her, that is all you will ever be. Her version of you. 
You must know who you are, who you want to be, by your own voice, on your own page. The stakes are higher than you could ever imagine. Sing sits there, perplexed, disconcerted, unsure. And then Artemis leans back. You are dismissed, Agent Sing. Prepare for your mission briefing. And it is only when Singh's hand reaches for the brass doorknob that Artemis speaks again. Softer this time. Be careful, Singh. Listen to your... We pull in on Singh's bright pink gaze out of Artemis's office and we find ourselves back in the present. Singh's face is no longer conflicted, it is no longer drawn, it is no longer dark and unsure. Instead, her expression is the brightest any of you have ever seen it before. Her brother's question rings soundly in her mind, and the answer is as clear to her as moon's light. Under her breath, barely louder than a whisper, even as she looks at Sayer so softly and reverently that her brother can't hear her, that only precepts can hear her. Sing speaks. Fate would say no, wouldn't she? But I'm not letting her tell me what to do or who to be anymore. I'm choosing my own path and I will not burn. And on that, Sing slashes forward with her longsword and Amargen ascends in her true form and the scions fly downward and Sayer strikes and Zynan strikes and Lumira holds that taut and all of the wild sea collides with all of Aragnus and fire burns and burns and burns and burns until there is a plume of light, a halo of shadow. Aragnus screams, roars, Rages one final agonizing time, and then he explodes. He explodes into 8,000 pieces of broken fire and oil and ash splattering onto the leaves, igniting the vines with dust, spraying flames onto the forest floor. And then it is done. There is a moment of quiet. A moment of awestruck silence as all of you in tandem drift down onto the soft loam and the black soil of the darkness under eaves. And when the final foot lands, that is when the heart of the wild sea speaks. It sounds like creaking bark and whispering wind and hollow trunks and rattling leaves. It sounds like salt and storm and soil and gales. It sounds like ghosts and murk, darkness and light. And Tian Mu says, The seed takes root. The green grows up. The spark catches flame. The fire burns all. The ash feeds soil. The seed takes root. All we are is a cycle. Leviathan to Leviathan. Scion to Scion. Sea to spark. Spark to sea. Oh, scion of heart, what you hold in your paw.
is the life flame. It is the seed of Aragnus, as I was once a seed of green. It can be used to destroy and corrupt, or it can be used to help build a new world. Sayer, you have been drifting towards Sing this whole time, even as the two of you have levitated downward. But as Tianmu speaks, something begins tugging at you in the pit of your gut. That instinctual, primal connection. Tianmu continues. Fear not the sea, but not knowing the sea. Fear not the flame, but not knowing the flame. Aragonus was born in hatred and struggle, rage and violence, destruction and cruelty. But he need not remain this way. The cycle need not continue with pain and regret. It can continue with love and kindness. We need only to learn to live in a new way. Sayer, before your mind has interpreted what's coming, your body begins to move, screaming omen, 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 and that's when the rest of you hear the end of Mu's prayer and abrupt, sudden warning. But fast! A snake with his head cut off can still bite. And that's when one of the 8,000 pieces of Arachnus an oil-black blotch of pure hatred lunges from out of the shadows as a razor-sharp lance and shoots toward Aubergine's heart. And Sing, as always, is the first to act. She sprints forward, and she throws herself in front of Aubergine just in time, perfectly in time, as she always is. The lance goes through Sing's heart, her eyes widen, and the Chosen One dies. This episode was edited by Connie Chong. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplaner RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to Eliza Fuller, Rose, Cassidy, Jordan, Phil, Derek Davidson, Brooke in Seattle, Spencer, Lyle and Peanut, Mark J, Alex, Hat, Scruffesis, Lex Slater, Chiacres, Cora Eckert, and Charles. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!